This is the Front Page Podcast from the Red and Black. I'm Midori Jenkins. This week, we will discuss our January 20th issue. First, we will be speaking with Martina Esser, the Assistant Culture Editor, and Caitlin Farmer, News Desk Assistant, about the Georgia Homicide Victims Families Act. Then, Megan DeBach, Assistant Opinion Editor, talks about her article on eating disorders at UGA. Support for this podcast is provided by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership. For more information, visit grady.uga.edu slash Cox Institute. Martina, welcome back to the front page, and thanks for speaking to me about the Georgia Homicide Victims and Families Act. Families like Baker and Coleman's have had to go countless years without answers. Please give a brief explanation of the Tara Baker case for our listeners who may not be familiar, and explain how this ties into the new proposed legislation that is intended to prevent the same thing from happening to other families. So Tara Louise Baker was a student at the UGA Law School in the early 2000s. And in January of 2001, Tara Baker left the UGA Law Library after calling her friend to make sure that her friend got home safely. Tara was last seen at the UGA Law Library. And then the athens Clark County Fire Department received a phone call in regards to an apartment fire. And they responded to that call to Tara's apartment in the east side of Athens and they found Tara had been murdered in her apartment and that her apartment had been set on fire. Tara's case is still unsolved today. And there were very tense relations between the athens Clark County Police Department and the Baker family. The Baker family never really got answers about what had happened to Tara, about any leads that they had. They didn't receive a death certificate for their daughter for I believe about 10 years after her death and only after Athens native Cameron Jay started his Classic City Crime podcast did they receive an autopsy report almost 20 years after her death. Um, So there were a lot of issues in the investigation of this case and the handling of this case. So the Baker family and Jay really wanted to propose legislation that would make sure that that didn't happen again for other families in Georgia. As you just mentioned, the Classic City Crime Podcast has played an unconventional role in the Baker case. Can you talk about how Cameron Jay was able to bring national attention to a local Athens story and its effects on the case itself? Absolutely. I've talked extensively with Cameron. Um, This story is my third time covering this case and this podcast sort of tangentially, so I have talked with him a lot and I know that he was always interested in crime but more so was always interested in finding justice and so he started this podcast sort of as a hobby um, over the pandemic and he had heard about Tara's case in the past but his interest was sort of peaked more recently and since then he has done I believe a 24-part series investigating Tara's murder and investigating also her life and her legacy and what she was like as a person and how she was a staunch believer in justice. Um, So that was always sort of the backbone of his podcast and his investigations. Um, So the podcast gained some attention locally, I believe, and then through that sort of as it was gaining momentum and gaining more attention, it put pressure on local authorities to give the family more answers, to bring them some closure because they were hearing 
directly from the source, from Baker's parents and her sister about the lasting impacts that their missteps had had on them. So that put pressure on them to release more information and it's had a huge impact on her case. It's probably never going to be solved and Cameron agrees with me on that, but right now I believe that the family and Jay's main goal is to make sure that these missteps don't happen again to other families. In speaking about this new legislation, can you touch on Tara's law and the press release put out by the families? Absolutely. So Jay sort of partnered with one of his podcasting friends whose name is Sean Kite. Um, and they realized that there were two families, both in Georgia, who were sort of trying to find the same answers and the same goals um, in the cases of their sadly late daughters. So that was Tara Baker and Rhonda Sue Coleman of Hazelhurst. So the two families sort of came together and this proposed legislation is really seeking to establish solid steps that local authorities can take to be sure that these missteps that happened in Tara and Rhonda's cases don't happen again. Those steps include establishing an independent review board for homicide cases, increasing access to information for victims' families and the district attorney, authorizing the attorney general to investigate bias in homicide investigations, requiring the issuance of preliminary death certificates, and increasing funding for forensic testing of evidence. And that's all according to their press release. I know that in this case, the lack of information and also the amount of false information that the Baker family was given by authorities was really harmful to them. And this proposed legislation really extends victims' rights to the families because the families are the ones who are left to sort of advocate for their justice and in their memory, and they deserve the same rights that the victims have. Caitlin, can you talk a little bit about Rhonda Coleman's case and how many families don't know that they are entitled to certain protections and rights after these tragedies? Absolutely. So Rhonda Sue Coleman was in high school. She was a senior in high school and she left one night, I believe two weeks before she was supposed to graduate to go to this party and make a flag for all the seniors at the high school would make a flag and they would write sayings on it or they would put their names on it and they would hang it up in the school and she was going to work on that and she never came home and her parents said that that was very unlike her and her dad went and drove around and they ended up finding her car on the side of the road and it was running and her driver's side door was open but she was not in the car and all of her stuff was in the car and they looked for her for three days and then someone found her body body in the woods in a neighboring county. I cannot remember how far away exactly it was, but it was not very far from where Rhonda and her parents lived in Hazelhurst. And that was 31 years ago, and they still have not figured out who did it. I have been listening a lot to the Fox Hunter podcast by Sean Kipe, who is one of the people who is kind of spearheading this entire legislation with the Coleman family and the Baker family and Cameron Jay. And 
and he talks a lot in the podcast about the ways that the investigation could have been handled differently and better. And I think a lot of that also ties into the rights of the families because the investigation initially was not taken as seriously as it probably should have in order to be able to get things moving and kind of figure out what happened to Rhonda and what was going on. And Rhonda's parents still have never seen her autopsy report. They know that her body was burnt, but they also know that that's not what killed her because she was still identifiable. So that wasn't her cause of death. So they don't actually know her like specific cause of death because they've never been given access to their own daughter's autopsy report. Nor did they realize that that's something that they could fight to be able to see. And I think that that's a big issue with a lot of families in Georgia and I'm sure nationwide who go through this, who have a loved one who's been murdered and the case isn't going anywhere. If you don't have the knowledge on how to deal with the police and how these things should be handled, then it's going to be a lot later that you do learn that and you realize that and you can kind of start pushing things in the right direction. And I think that that is kind of what happened with the Coleman family is that their only point of contact for a really long time was the police and they were told by the police that the police would let them know what they needed to know and other than that they didn't need to know anything else and that was something that really like I, I've watched you know crime docuseries and shows and movies all of that stuff where they talk about where the police has kind of failed the families and the victims and everything but when I was speaking with Rhonda's dad and he was talking to me about how they don't even know 31 years later exactly how their daughter died that was just I think that's what when it really said in like how important this legislation is, because this is just one family and there are many, many others. And that was another thing that was kind of brought up, too, is that in pushing and like publicizing this legislation and the podcast on Rhonda Sue Coleman and everything, all of the attention that it's brought, I was speaking with Natasha Bennett, who is Rhonda's cousin, but she is also the family attorney and she also played a role in writing parts of this legislation. She helped put together Rhonda's law, which was combined with Tara's law to make the Georgia homicide. But Natasha Bennett worked on Rhonda's law and they combined that with Tara's law in order to create this legislation. And Natasha was telling me when we spoke about how she's had so many families contact her and say, you know, this is our story. This is what happened. It reminded me a lot of your family's story. This is where we've been failed. These are the things that we haven't been given access to. This is where we need help, basically. And it just, like for me, when I was speaking with Natasha and with Rhonda's father, Milton, I think that that was when it just kind of struck me. Reading it is one thing, but then like actually speaking to the people that are impacted by it is another. And that was when it really just kind of struck me how important this was was because as Milton said in our interview, I mean, him and his wife are getting older and he said he's ready to go when it's his time, but he doesn't want to go without having the answers that he deserves on what happened to his daughter. And I think even if it's her case isn't solved before then, that I hope at least for him and for his family, you know, with finding like peace and closure that 
this legislation would get passed so that they could at least read their daughter's autopsy report and at least be able to leave this earth knowing what took her from this earth because they've gone 31 years with a death certificate that doesn't even have her true cause of death on it because the police are keeping that to themselves. This is definitely a really heartbreaking story to read. And it's interesting that podcasting has helped bring light to the issues with this case specifically. So how did the Fox Hunter podcast lead to a connection between the Baker and Coleman families in getting this legislation put together? Yeah, so when I was speaking with Natasha Bennett, she was telling me about how they were contacted by Sean Kaip, who is the person who runs the Fox Hunter podcast. And in listening to the podcast, I learned that he learned about the case through a retired GBI agent who worked on Rhonda's case, reached out to him after listening to another podcast that Sean Kaip had done and basically said, you know, I have this case that I've been working on. It's been a cold case for 30 years one years I think that you're the right person to help with this and that's how Sean Kipe learned about it and he contacted the family and he really played a big part too in helping the family learn kind of what they're entitled to and what they should have access to which I think is really interesting because I mean podcasting obviously has created such a big platform for people to learn about these cases and I think that's incredible but it's also created a platform for people to learn about the other things that play into these cases besides just what happened, which is the law enforcement side and the court side of everything. And I think it's really cool that he not only wanted to share Rhonda's story, but also in doing that was able to help the family learn so much more about what happened. I mean, Natasha was telling me that a lot of what they know about that night is from Sean Kipe's investigations and from the people that he was able to get access to and the people that he was able to speak to. And another thing that Natasha also mentioned was just the wide reach of it. She was telling me that the Fox Hunter podcast was number one, I believe, in Australia and that she has this running list on her phone of all of the different countries that the podcast is doing really well in. And she was just telling me how interesting and how crazy it was that a podcast about a teenage girl who was murdered in Georgia, whose case has never been solved, is being listened to by people in China and people in Australia. And I think that that just really speaks a lot to how much of a platform that podcasts are able to give to these people's stories and what a wide reach it has. Because Natasha also was saying in our interview that through the podcast, that's how they've been able to piece together Rhonda's last day, last night on earth, because the podcast started gaining attention and people started reaching out and it was people who had gone to high school there that are now older and they remember things and they're looking at things with an adult perspective instead of a teenage perspective and they're realizing oh this could actually be important and they're reaching out to Sean and because of the podcast they're able to have a better picture of what happened 31 years later which is really cool I think that even that you know much later people are still coming forward and they're wanting to share what they know. And so Cameron Jay, who does the Classic City Crime podcast on Tara Baker, was listening to the Fox Hunter podcast done by Sean Kipe on Rhonda Sue Coleman and heard Sean Kipe talking about Rhonda's Law, which Natasha Bennett, the family attorney, and Rhonda's cousin 
helped put together with Sean Kipe and Rhonda's parents. And he heard them talking about Rhonda's law and realized how similar it was to Tara's law, which is what they were working on here in Athens, and asked Sean if they would be interested in combining the two and creating this Georgia Homicide Victims Families Rights Act. And they together were able to take the two laws that they had to create this act. And Natasha, I really liked what she said about it in her interview, that the Bakers had pieces that the Coleman's had never thought of and the Coleman's had pieces that the Bakers had never thought of. And so they were able to bring those two together to create something that's overarching, basically, that will be able to help all families in Georgia who have lost people or family members or friends, loved ones. And it will be able to help all of them get the answers that they also are looking for, because it's not just the Bakers and the Coleman's that are affected by, you know, the police not sharing information. It's every family in this state who has a family member and a loved one whose case has never been solved. You've really touched on the fact that this is happening on a national level. There is a proposed federal bipartisan act out there. How does this national proposed legislation compare to the Georgia Homicide Victims and Families Act? And how do Tara and Rhonda's laws play into things? McCall and Swalwell are putting together the Homicide Victims Families Rights Act. The Homicide Victims Families Rights Act of 2021 was created by Swalwell and McCall, and they both wanted to create something that would help take care of and solve the massive amount of cold cases that we have in this country. I I can't think of the exact numbers right now, but in the press release that was shared with us on the Georgia Homicide Victims Family Rights Act. There was mention about FBI statistics on cold cases and how the likelihood of cold cases being solved has decreased a lot in the last few years just because of people not trusting the police, people not wanting to come forward with things. And it's created a big issue in solving cold cases because if you don't have people that are willing to speak, you're not going to get anywhere. And so this federal Homicide Victims Families Rights Act of 2021 will create a board, basically. So a board will be created within the federal Homicide Victims Families Rights Act of 2021, where they will look at these cold cases and determine if they need to start over the entire investigation or if it can continue kind of from where it is. And they will determine if there were any issues in the policing and the initial investigation, basically just making sure that everything was done as it should be, that all of the evidence has been tested in every way that it can be, that they've looked at every single thing that they can, that nothing has been left untouched, basically, within these case files and these investigations to ensure that everything's being done to solve these cold cases. Now, we will speak with Megan Tabak, assistant opinion editor, about her article on how the social nature of college campuses can perpetuate eating disorders. Megan, welcome to the Front Page Podcast, and thank you for speaking to me about your article. How is the notion of the freshman 15 really taking a toll on students, especially those that rely on getting meals from the dining halls on campus? 
Yeah, I mean, from what I have seen, the freshman 15, the fear of it is more real than actually gaining it. I think a lot of people go into college with the mindset that they need to do whatever they can to avoid the freshman 15 because it's something to be feared instead of something that's normal. And being in the dining hall only adds stress to this. From what I have seen, the dining halls, although they have a lot of options, endless buffets, it appears, but a lot of those options really aren't too healthy unless you eat a salad for every meal. The dining hall is also a social place, so people will go there with their friends and they all also have this fear, the freshman 15 or they rub off on one another and people become conscious about their eating habits in the dining halls. Additionally, you mentioned in your article how community living like sorority housing and dorms can also negatively affect body image. How are insecurities being transferred in college communities and even surfacing on social media? Yeah, so this is something that I've noticed a lot from living in the dorms last year and also living in a sorority house, but Girls tend to get ready together and often make comments to one another about their appearances. It's often out of insecurity or other underlying issues, but that can make some people self-conscious to wear certain things. And when I first came here, I noticed that the style that a lot of people wear when they go out is really tight, revealing tops, which is completely fine. I completely understand that, but it's a style that doesn't work for everyone. And I think there's this expectation that everyone should kind of conform to this, even though it's a it doesn't work for everyone. People have different body types, etc., and they have this pressure to look a certain way to look just like their friends when it's really not possible. You know, there is also a lot of stigma around men facing eating disorders. Can you talk a little bit about the dismissal of men who may be facing issues with body image? Yeah, so I think this is definitely something that is completely overlooked. Men struggle with body image just as much as women do, although standards may differ, especially the stigma around going to the gym. There's this expectation that in order to go to the weight section or any section of the gym, that you have to already be in shape, even though that's why people go to the gym to get in shape. So in turn, many people don't go. And that's how they end up changing their eating habits because they want to try to change their body image a different way. And a lot of people don't even realize that men are dealing with eating disorders. It's often overlooked. And a lot of people focus on females and don't give any attention to other genders who may suffer from this. For our listeners, what do you really hope people will take away from this piece? I really hope that everyone will start being more aware of other people around them. I think that we need to work on being nicer to each other instead of tearing each other down and that we need to be aware that everyone has their own perceptions of themselves and they all have their own perceptions of food and that what we say to one another has a bigger impact than we think. This has been The Front Page. The Front Page is a production of the Red and Black Publishing Company. You can find the stories discussed in this episode in the paper edition or on redandblack.com. Make sure to download our app, keep up with us on social media, and check out our new health podcast, The Athens Frontline, hosted by health editor Simran Kaur Malhotra. We hope to see you next week.